Al Jazeera Podcasts. There's growing pressure to hold Israel to account for its war on Gaza. More countries are now referring it to international courts, and its president is facing a criminal complaint in Switzerland. So can international justice stop Israel? I'm Elizabeth Puradam, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests in Paris, Lara El Bono, an international lawyer and human rights advocate who co-hosts the weekly podcast, The Palestine Pod. In Toronto, William Shavers, professor of international law at Middlesex University in the UK. He previously served as the chairperson of the Commission of Inquiry on the 2014 Gaza conflict. And in Dublin, Jennifer Cassidy, lecturer in diplomacy and international law at the University of Oxford and a former UN and EU diplomat. A very warm welcome to each of you. Mr. Shabas, I'll start with you in Toronto and start with that criminal complaint against Israeli President Isaac Herzog in Switzerland. Now, in theory, I know that third countries don't have criminal jurisdiction over heads of state, government and the foreign ministers of any other countries. But can that immunity be lifted in certain circumstances, such as cases of alleged crimes against humanity? Not as international law stands today. There's quite a, a, a clear judgment of the International Court of Justice uh, from about 20 years ago that says that the, the national courts simply cannot exercise jurisdiction uh, in criminal matters over a foreign head of state or foreign minister. So I think it's pretty clear there, and I think that's probably the the uh, the fatal uh, fact uh, of the complaint that was made against the president of Israel in Switzerland a few days ago. Okay. Ms. Cassidy, there has been a lot of activity in Western countries recently using universal jurisdiction, targeting people in Sudan and Syria. Are these countries such as Germany, which found a Syrian colonel guilty of crimes against humanity in 2022, are they now under pressure to treat Israeli officials in the same way? Certainly there is, as you rightly noted, a growing pressure um, in, quote-unquote, Western countries um, to to not only respect international law, but to adhere to it and uphold it. And although it was rightly mentioned by the, by the previous panelists, this is quite difficult to do regarding the universal jurisdiction. Specifically, in this case, we must note that this is a serving uh, head of state who has diplomatic immunity. It is not a post, um, you know, uh, retired head of state. It is a serving member state. So it's an extremely difficult thing to pro uh, prosecute. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an extremely difficult thing to, to file. However, pressure, as you rightly noted, pressure is being exerted, uh, not by governments and not by, uh, yes, by some to extent governments, but the political um, power is not backing a lot of Western states. It's the people um, around the world who are really actually growing this movement and pressurizing their states um, and their legislators to do this. Yeah, absolutely. From what we know about this criminal complaint against the Israeli president, it has been brought by a number of individuals. Uh, Ms. Elborno, do you think that we will see universal jurisdiction being used against Israeli officials who, let's say, unlike President Isaac Herzog, who don't have that immunity because they're a head of state or head of government or a foreign minister, could it make it difficult for them to move around? Is that something that you see happening? Uh, 
Well, I absolutely agree that we're going to continue to see more legal action brought worldwide, whether it be in national courts um, or continued pressure on the international institutions like the ICC and the ICJ um, to uh, achieve some sort of accountability. Um, and I just want to say that whether or not those cases are ultimately successful, whether or not they're dismissed for jurisdictional or procedural reasons, or whether they actually reach um, a ruling on the merits is almost not really the point. Every new case which is brought in an effort to hold Israel accountable um, for their genocidal onslaught in Gaza is going to add more pressure to changing the status quo. And this, of course, is not to be viewed in isolation from all the forms of resistance that we're seeing um, in this moment worldwide, including BDS, grassroots efforts like direct action, and other efforts to hold elected officials accountable, um, amongst others. So really, I just want to emphasize that the law is merely a tool. Um, it's not sufficient, but it's also not meaningless, as some might think, after decades of um, understandable frustration Okay. with it as a means for achieving justice and accountability. Yes, and we've certainly seen uh, protests around the world. We have seen growing support for the boycott, divestment and sanctions or BDS movement. Um, if we can continue to talk about what's happening legally, Mr. Shabas, Mexico and Chile have referred what's happening in Israel and Gaza to the International Criminal Court. And Mexico has said that the ICC is the proper forum to establish criminal, potential criminal responsibility. Why do you think that these countries think that the ICC is a better court to investigate what's happening? Well, the ICC is, a, of course, a criminal court, and it's going to focus on individuals. We were talking about the, the situation of the president of Israel visiting Switzerland. Um, according to the case law of the International Criminal Court, he has no immunity there. And so he could be prosecuted, and Switzerland would be under an obligation to, to bring him to justice, to see that he would be transferred to The Hague, arrested, and so on. So there are some real advantages to the criminal law route. Uh, it's also something that can operate more speedily uh, than, for example, the International Court of Justice, which is mm -hmm. going to probably in the next few days, in the next week or two, deliver an order against Israel. But on the merits of the case, we're not going to have a ruling for probably three, four, five years. It's another way of putting pressure, and mm -hmm. it's very important what those states have done, because they are putting pressure uh, on the prosecutor of the court. Uh, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has been reluctant, I think, to proceed uh, with uh, Israel and Palestine, and this is going to tighten the screws on him and, and, and hopefully compel more uh, action on his part. Yeah, Ms. Cassidy, that's certainly been one accusation against the ICC prosecutor, Karim Khan, isn't it? Is that he favours Israeli charges over long-standing uh, Palestinian charges. Do you, how much pressure do you think um, Karim Khan is under as the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court? A huge amount of pressure, and rightly so. And I think your observations regarding um, the, uh, well, also the global observations that he's favouring the is, is Israeli side over the Palestinian side, because this, we, we need to bear in mind, this is uh, these advisory motions also by the ICJ and other countries regarding the illegal annexation of territories, what's happening in the West Bank, the changing status of Jerusalem. All these charges have been brought well before 
you know, October 7th. And this has never been looked into by the court, but he is, and he should be experiencing a lot of pressure. And I think a key point to note that was noted again by, by the previous panelists, which we must pick up on is the speediness at which the ICC can act. Because with mm-hmm. the ICJ, for example, we know that a genocidal ruling is going to take years. I myself worked on the Khmer Rouge tribunals in Cambodia, and these took um, you know, over decades for convictions of genocide and crimes against humanity. But with the ICC, we see a much speedier, and it's also not going to be brought to the uh, UN Security Council for a binding resolution. So that's the other key distinction between the ICC and the ICJ. And Ms. Alborno, why do you think that the ICC has been slow, as the criticism goes, to look at um, the grievances of Palestinians? And do you think that the amount of pressure that is on the story now because of Israel's war on Gaza, that that will, that that will change the way the ICC looks at this case? Well, I think part of the answer is at least uh, the political pressure that the court has been under. So remember when the court announced, uh, the prosecutor's office announced that they would be investigating uh, violations of the Rome Statute um, that occurred in Afghanistan and in Palestine uh, around 2020, the U.S. actually imposed sanctions on the uh, ICC, the then prosecutor Fatou Bensouda, um, and uh, revoked her U.S. visa. And so there's at least that political element that's at play here. Um, But I think that really uh, Kareem Khan needs to act. He could have issued arrest warrants months ago. And we're seeing greater criticism of how he's handling this situation. Hundreds of scholars and practitioners of international law submitted an open letter to the Assembly of State Parties um, regarding the Office of the Prosecutor's engagement with this case. And this letter, I encourage everyone to read it, raises questions surrounding his impartiality and his entire handling of this matter. So he really needs to move much quicker than he has. There hasn't even been an update in terms of news on the ICC website with respect to the case in Palestine since November. And this is really just unacceptable. All right. And if we look now at what's happening at the International Court of Justice, as we wait to hear if it's going to order those provisional measures that South Africa is asking for, for the protection of civilians in Gaza. Gaza. Mr. Shabas, do you think that even before we have any rulings, do the, does what's happening in the court have the power to shape events, even separate from any rulings? You know, we had the Israeli attorney general said that she was going to investigate statements that might qualify as incitement to harm uninvolved civilians a few days before the hearings. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I think that the, the, the hearing that took place uh, a week ago in The Hague had had great influence. People heard the very, very compelling and powerful uh, arguments set out by South Africa. This was, of course, viewed around the world. And I think the rather uh, pathetic efforts, really, by Israel to respond to them. So this is already influential in putting that argument out. We've been certainly living in Western countries, as I do. We've been bombarded by media and so on there. Which are all presenting, which are which are tilting very much to the Israeli side uh, in the debates, and it was so important to to have that access and to see that very transparent and public debate where we saw both arguments set out. People yeah. can judge based on it, and, and and so this is very very influential already. 
but of course, we need the order from the court, and, and that's going to be a very important development. Yeah, Ms. Cassidy, Mr. Chabas is saying that, you know, what is happening in the court is really influential. It's exposed the deepening global divide, though, hasn't it? We have dozens of countries supporting South Africa's case at the International Court of Justice, but they all happen to be from the global south, while many Western countries are standing, standing by Israel. Do you think that the number of countries that are supporting South Africa's case, does that put pressure on Israel, or does it not care as long as the US and a number of, you know, a small number of Western countries stand by it? Well, the personal part of me would like to say, yes, it puts pressure on Israel, but from all the, the you know, from, from the academic uh, side of me, all the evidence and, and the statements points towards um, you, you, your, your latter re response that Israel simply does not care. We know the direct statement from um, Netanyahu who came out and said that if there is a ruling of genocide or, or of the provisional measures, um, I believe the quote was, and may not be verbatim, but um, we do not care. Uh, what he said that no one, he said that no one can stop them, that the no hate one will stop yet. Not the axis of evil, no one. So yeah, he, Israel, and once they have the backing of the US um, and also the UK, they have the, the, the funding, now they have the backing of Germany. I don't think any, from, from the barbaric actions we've seen Israel commit in Gaza, I do not think um, uh, pressure by Western governments that they're not even regarding is going to have any play out uh, with them. Where we're going to see the difference here uh, is whether when there's an ICJ ruling mm -hmm. and it goes to the UN Security Council, will the US abide by the legal arm of the UN or will they still continue to um, abstain on the re resolution or vote against it? Yeah. And, and, and Ms. Salborno, what do you think, you know, if the ICJ does order the provisional measures that South Africa is asking for, how much pressure does that put on the United States, on Israel's biggest ally, to abide by what the UN's top court is saying? Well, I think it will put the U.S. in a difficult place because if they ignore the ruling and, uh, you know, that there's a plausible case for, for genocide, which is what the court is being asked um, right now that there's a plausible case that Israel has violated the Genocide Convention, um, then it'll put the U.S. in a really difficult position because do they really want to continue to provide um, unlimited and unconditional financial and military aid to Israel and thereby actually violate, in a sense, um, that order? Um, because that will only undermine the court itself. And does the, does the U.S. really want to undermine the highest you know, judicial organ in the world? I think it will... Um, put the U.S. in a difficult position. Obviously, it will make it much more difficult for the U.S. to lecture anybody worldwide about human rights and their own behavior. And it will just expose even further that the U.S. operates according to double standards and hypocrisy and not in accordance with the legal framework um, established after World War II to prevent and sanction mass atrocities. Uh, Mr. Shabas, a lot is, of course, known and made of the U.S. support for Israel, but I want to talk about Germany's intervention at the International Court of Justice. Germany has a very interesting history, doesn't it? It committed the first genocide of the 20th century against Namibia. It, of course, c committed genocide against the Jews and the Holocaust. And yet it supported the Gambia's case against Myanmar. It supports Ukraine's case 
against Russia, and this time it is intervening on behalf of Israel. What do you make of this? And do you think that it could, Germany's history, could it help or hinder Israel's case? I don't know. I really appreciated the statement from the president of Namibia, who basically said to the Germans, you know, you should keep your mouth shut when you start getting involved in denying genocide. It's not a good look for that country. But, you know, the, the, the this is the, the beauty of these remedies before the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that they really uh, have much influence on the United States. That was your previous question. But I think that they do put a lot of pressure on some of, many of the middle powers who are very close to Israel and very supportive, Germany among them, perhaps first and foremost, but other countries, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Canada, where I am coming from today. Um, and these countries are all very loyal to Israel, but they're also very loyal to the International Court of Justice mm -hmm. and to the International Criminal Court. So taking a, a, a battle there, so to speak, puts them in a very, very difficult and uncomfortable place, especially when you have someone like the Prime Minister of Israel uh, basically being totally dismissive of the International uh, Court of Justice. And of course, they'll say the same about the International, the International Criminal Court. D just to give you an example, uh, a few months ago, Canada, the Netherlands, Germany, France made a submission to the International uh, Court of Justice in the case that's been filed against Myanmar. And they proposed a very expansive understanding of the crime of genocide. Uh, this, of course, is going to be very helpful in terms of finding against Myanmar in the case, but it's also going to be very helpful to South Africa. I think that probably the lawyers in those countries, those European countries in Canada, who prepared that are now regretting that they took that initiative. Yeah. But it, it brings up the double standards. Because this mm -hmm. is the beauty of the court. It's a, it's a place where you can, to some extent, I don't want to say there are no double standards there either, but you can cut through them and you can expose them. And, yes. and that's the interest in these remedies. Absolutely. And Ms. Cassidy, how much do you think, I mean, we have been talking about it already, but just how much has Israel's war on Gaza have the divides exposed the double standards of the US, of Europe, when they openly and time and time again condemn, say, Russia's actions in Ukraine and stand by Israel? How much longer do you think they can do that without realizing how it looks? Yes, well, it has, uh, there has been many moments uh, in the past decades that have exposed the double standards um, of the West when it comes to war crimes and when it comes to their um, quote unquote attempt to spread democracy um, around the world. I think we are, I, the optimist in me thinks we are at somewhat of a breaking point um, on this issue because we have, my area of expertise is social media and real-time governance. We've never had a war which we have, as uh, you know, a global society, been able to see these atrocities before our eyes. So I mm -hmm. think the people, and we've seen the reaction of the world. You know, we've seen uh, people marching in their millions, if not billions, of countries of you know every nationality yeah. and every region. So I think we are at, at, at a breaking point. But you know. Turning directly back to back to your question, the hypocrisy 
is so strong. And, and as was noted earlier, if the US rejects the ICJ's even provisional measures, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they've already lost credibility, in my opinion, to yeah. lecture along with the UK to lecture people on upholding international human rights. But this will really, right. uh, this the litmus test. Yeah, Miss Albono, let me come to you with a people who didn't have the benefit of social media, the people who survived the Bosnian war. 1,000 survivors of the war have written a letter to the International Court of Justice saying that, you know, if the court had acted um, earlier, then it would have prevented a genocide and war crimes there. Do you think that what happened in Bosnia, what happened in Rwanda, that these things, that the International Court of Justice, that these are things that they will be thinking about? I would certainly hope so. In fact, even South Africa's advocate uh, during the oral argument said very clearly to the court that the court actually failed those people um, who had uh, experienced genocide um, and failed to deliver them justice and so called on the court to act before it's too late in this instance and not to fail the Palestinian people. And some might say that actually that's already taken place and that there's really, in a sense, no justice, you know, that can be attained from this point on. Because where do you go um, after already 30,000 people have been killed in three months? And, you know, Gaza is creating, you know, and breaking new records every day in terms of destruction and human suffering. It seems Uh like every time I check my phone, I'm seeing some sort of a new superlative being used to describe the situation in Gaza. So I would hope that the court will take that into account. Um, and, and recognize that they have a tremendous responsibility here not to fail another people. Which is, what South Af- which is what South Africa underlined many times to the court. Mr. Shabas, despite the International Court of Justice in 1993 ordering provisional measures um, in the Bosnian war, we know what happened in 1995, the, that Bosnian Serbs systematically murdered 8,000 Bosnian Muslims, That's despite that provisional order that was in place. So will anything short of a complete ceasefire now help the people of Gaza? Well, anything is going to help them, but I totally agree. We need a complete ceasefire, and I, I hope that the International Court of Justice has the wisdom to do that. Um, everything points to the fact that um, regardless of how strong the claim is about genocide, Israel has shown itself to be incapable of distinguishing between civilians and military objectives. And so is it incapable of is it incapable of distinguishing? Or does it make the well, dis- distinction and it, go ahead anyway? Well, perhaps. I mean there are two ways to look at this. One is that it's incapable of distinguishing, or the other is that it's essentially directing a war against the civilians of Gaza. Uh, that's becoming also increasingly apparent that it's it's actually trying to drive the people of Gaza either out of the country entirely, out of their, their home, uh, I mean, their new home, because they're refugees in Gaza to begin with, but but that this is the real objective, not to destroy Hamas, as they say, not to rescue the hostages, which they're incapable of doing, but rather to attack the, the people of Gaza. So hopefully the International Court of Justice will appreciate that and will make an order against Israel. Now, you raise the question, will Israel follow that? That's the other problem. And there's no meaningful way of enforcing this, Mm -hmm. uh, except that if there is such an order, it is going to really turn the screws on some of Israel's allies. Although, as I say, I don't think that the United States is going to be uh, persuaded at all. You have to remember that the first, the decision by the International Court of Justice 
on the binding nature of provisional measures was directed against the United States because they refused to themselves uh, respect provisional measures of the court in, in a case of more than 20 years ago. All right. I'm afraid that we have run out of time, but I want to thank all of our guests for this insightful discussion. That is Lara Elborno in Paris, William Chavis in Toronto, and Jennifer Cassidy in Dublin. This episode was produced by Mohamed El Aushi, Paul Ging, Abla Kla, and Jimmy Getahoon. Studio sound was by Suraj Shankar. The program was edited by Alexander Kohler, David Enders, and Joda Frears. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and tune in on Sunday for our next edition. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, an asteroid with enough minerals to completely transition Earth to green energy is discovered. But we found it. A bountiful supply of nickel and cobalt that will save our planet many times over. But should the materials go to everyone? or just those with the power to get them first. If anyone can take those minerals, we'll only be rewarding greed. The guiding principle in all exploration is first come, first served. A Feast for Cobalt on Necessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.